Get Up Nation. I hope you're enjoying the Get Up Nation podcast on www.anchor.fm. As a podcast host on over 20 platforms, I really enjoy how easy it is to use Anchor, how Anchor makes everything I need available in one place for free, accessible on your smartphone or desktop computer. Go to www.anchor.fm now. In case you didn't know, Anchor has creation tools that allow you to record and edit each episode. If you're concerned about the distribution of your hard work, don't sweat it because Anchor takes care of that too. If you're considering becoming a podcaster, I would highly recommend Anchor as your choice to begin sharing your content with the world. Get Up Nation. My name is Ben Biddick. I am the creator and host of the Get Up Nation podcast, where I serve individuals, organizations, and societies to develop and sustain resilience and perseverance. I'm the co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance, with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Rurong Living, Adam Greenberg. The Get Up Nation podcast is brought to you in partnership with GotYour6Coffee.com, where Navy veteran Eric Hadley is committed to serving first responders, veterans, and their families through a variety of nonprofit organizations. No stranger to adversity, Eric has fused necessity of coffee with his passion for public service. You're already purchasing coffee. Why not empower your coffee with purpose? Why not purchase coffee that not only has your six, but also has the backs of those who don a uniform of service for our communities and great country? Learn more about Eric and his freshly roasted award-winning coffee at gotyoursixcoffee.com. Welcome to this episode of the Get Up Nation podcast. Recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with John Eric Bauer, the author of Contemplative Caregiving, Finding Healing, Compassion, and Spiritual Growth Through End-of-Life Care. John has been a contemplative educator, social science researcher, and end-of-life caregiver for more than two decades. Dr. Bauer consults and offers workshops internationally on spiritual care, grief, and transformation, and contemplative learning. John's website is johnericbauer.com. There you will see two quotes, one from Thupten Jinpa, the principal translator of the Dalai Lama that reads, Our families, hospitals, prisons, and whole society can benefit from the vision of compassion offered by John Bauer. This second quote reads, Bauer pioneers for us the very outer frontiers of human empathy from Arlie Hodgchild, a finalist for the National Book Award. Dr. Bauer's mission is to support those who suffer and those who care with teachings on the practice of compassionate caregiving. His vision is to create a world where compassion for all is the foundation of human culture and social systems. I feel very honored to be speaking with John today and to learn his insights and perspective on how we as individuals, organizations, and societies can develop and sustain resilience as we are confronted with the reality of death and seek to ease suffering during our experience of life. Doctor, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ben. It's an honor for me to be on your program. Doctor, it's such a pleasure to be speaking with you today. I can't say enough about the value of your recent book, Contemplative Caregiving by Shambhala Publications, distributed by Penguin Random House. I've already marked and underlined something on nearly every page I've read. The book is tremendous. In my opinion, it ought to be issued to every person pursuing a, a medical licensure, really gives great perspective, and that would bring, I think, a lot of improvement 
to our current healthcare system, when we look at life through the eyes and through the focus and the lens that you've created with your book here. Just so impressed. Thank you so much, Ben. At the beginning of the book, you describe the evolution of hospice care and some of your earliest experiences performing hospice care. In 1993, you were 24 years old. You met with a social worker briefly who did some cursory introductions on the history of hospice, gave you no particular training, and then sent you out to help a man named Jerome. You knocked on his door. He met you at the door basically in his underwear and asked, how do we do this? Being your first experience of providing hospice care, you openly and honestly told him this was the first time you were doing it yourself, so you didn't really know. Uh, Jerome responded he didn't know what to do either because he had never died before. Will you describe some of these dynamics that occur between people who are dying and those who seek to ease their suffering by providing them with end-of-life care? Thank you, Ben. That's a great question. And I appreciate you beginning the conversation by reading that about the interaction with Jerome because I think in that moment there's a, a key teaching that I was gifted on my very first encounter in end-of-life care with a core teaching that I think applies not just to end-of-life care giving, but really to any kind of caregiving, whether it's in a medical setting, as a professional, or in our own families and with friends, as a parent, that we have really good intentions. You know, we show up as best we can, but ultimately we don't know what's needed until we're in that encounter with that person. And so many people I've interviewed for the book, I interviewed 75 people in, in the U.S. and Germany in different hospice settings, and many folks told me that those who are dying were some of their greatest teachers. And I think that is one of the core lessons, that, that we show up and allow the we step into not knowing. We have our heart open, we're prepared as best we can, but we have our heart open to receive the person as they are with whatever is needed in that moment. And if it was a, really a journey of discovery, and so I think for a lot of caregivers, perhaps particularly professionals, but I think family caregivers as well, we're confronted with a feeling of powerlessness when we don't know what to do. And I think that can lead folks to either turn away from others who are suffering or can kind of bring about more of a frenetic energy of, I've got to do something, I've got to say the right thing, do the right thing. And so I appreciate you beginning with that that interaction with Jerome, which was a reminder, we don't know. And that willingness to embrace that, that not knowing is the starting point and the essential practice in this work. And could you take us through this? It's such a noble life that you're living. It's truly unique. It is truly beautiful that you have dedicated yourself to providing end-of-life care it's a sacred, sacred thing. Will you walk us through what led you to taking this on? When, will you share about where this desire came from? I, I know that in, in some of the literature that's been written about you, you lost your, your mother when you were 18. Did that have a profound impact on you and guide you toward this? Or, or what really led you up to that point to Jerome's door? Yeah, uh, thanks. Thanks, Ben. Well, First of all, I'll, I'll say I'll re, you know receive you know you 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 mentioned that I'm living a noble life and I and undertaking sacred work and so I'll receive that accolade. Yes, I do believe the work is sacred, and I want to say that I think all of our lives are noble. That each of us has this capacity to discover what matters most in this life and what our particular 
gifts and interests are, and whatever suffering comes our way, that we can use that as an opportunity to wake up. And so as I write in the book that, you know, grief or suffering isn't just something that happens to us, but it's a real generative act. It's, it's a moment where we can engage it and can use it to, to wake ourselves up to, to worth our, our energy on this, on this planet. So in my own life, yes, I would say that it, so my mother was killed when I was just two months shy of 19, and I was in my third semester in college, and I would say that I was pretty much sleepwalking at the time. And, and so when my mother was killed, I think any time when, when we suffer trauma, losing someone so suddenly, you know, there is that relationship, that, that, that broken bond, that loss of my mother. But what it really did, you know, essential to that, to that loss is sort of waking me up to questions of who am I? What, what, what am I doing on this planet? And, you know, what kind of possibilities are for, you know, that we human beings can do to really harm each other like this? But, but what else is really possible here? And so that really put in me some deeper questions that I then turned to. I double majored in psychology and sociology, and largely these courses were in social psychology and motivational psychology and a course on, on death and dying. These were spaces where I could explore these questions that weren't just academic questions, but were questions that were really relevant for my, my own life. And it was about five years after that. So in, in summer 2000, excuse me, 1993, I was in my second year in graduate school in New Orleans at Tulane University when I finally began volunteering for hospice. And, you know, it's, it's a combination of, of both the motivation, so there's the suffering that, that I was engaged, you know, really trying to understand and make sense of and integrate in my life. And then just the opportunity came. So I had first heard of hospice in, in, a, in a course, university, a death and dying course. And it wasn't, and so some seed was planted there. It wasn't like an obvious thing, I'm going to go do this. And then when I went to grad school, you know, I'm, I saw a billboard sign on giving blood. And I had never given blood or done any any sort of what we think of as altruistic acts before. And so I'm like, you know what, I'm going to go give some blood. And, and it really was this moment of experiencing myself giving that really helped give an answer to a question that I had had and continued to travel with. But this was a beginning answer to it of how can I take this, this suffering that, that's been handed to me, to my family, and really give my blood, give my life, give my energy in a way that can make sense of this. And somehow I would even use the phrase that, that some people I interviewed use of making right, somehow making right in some spiritual way what, what was handed to me, to, to, to my family. Will you speak a little bit about, as you made, so you, you made that initial entry into Jerome's life and you began to immerse yourself in the caring for others at the end of their life, you each person that that does this work has their own experience, and then they have that openness that you talked about of entering someone's life. How can this balance be found where you speak about how prior personal trauma and grief affect caregivers' abilities to provide patient-centered end-of-care life? How can people be truly ready to provide this kind of care for other human beings? How can they possess a depth of resilience that enables them to do this kind of work over a long period of time? That's a great question, Ben. And, 
And what I would say to listeners is, you know, when I, as I offer an answer to this, to really think about your own life, you know, so, so don't just accept something because I'm saying it. Really see how it applies to you. So maybe there's listeners now who have lost a spouse or, or, uh, or someone else in life that you've cared for, and how will you know if you're ready to engage in that? So I'm just in, in, in inviting folks to, to, to contemplate and apply to their own selves what I'm offering here. And I would say... As a starting point, I think our culture sets us up for some, some, I think, unfortunate ways of thinking about grief and suffering. And so one of those is this notion that grief is something that can be, quote, resolved, that we resolve, we do our work and we resolve our grief. And so as I write about in the book, there is a get the general guideline in hospice care that if you want to volunteer for hospice, if you've had a major death in your life, you're, you know, they want you to wait 12 months before you know, jumping in to caring for others. And, and that makes sense to me that, that some space be allowed for us to, some time and space be allowed for us to more fully integrate or begin that work of integrating a loss in our lives. But I would say that there's, it's a bit artificial, you know, 12 months. Some, some folks, you know, it, more sooner than that, you, you have a sense of I'm not totally overwhelmed by this. For others, it may be a bit longer, but I would say that that there's no resolution that that throughout our lives, when we when we love someone, when we care about someone, we lose them. That at different points, things will come up for us. So, what's really needed, I would say, is is a, a motivation, you know, a positive. And if you have a positive intention, don't let it go to waste. But what's really crucial is that we have the the proper support for us to engage in that work. And by that support. I mean both inner and outer. So with inner support, I mean a willingness to, to in, in, in the book, I call it a path of self-elimination. So we have some kind of practice or practices that support us in, in seeing who we are in the caregiving, what comes up for us in the caregiving. So it's, it's not that we've done our work and now we're ready to be a caregiver. It's that through the actual act of caregiving, I am constantly taking a look at, at what's coming up for me as, as, as the caregiver and working with that. And so in terms of an outer environment, one of the beauty of hospice is that there were these just brilliant, wise, compassionate people, mostly women, who did this work of creating this structure of care where the mission of hospice from the beginning was to provide the best possible end-of-life care, but also to empower lay people to empower, you know, throughout human history, we've always cared for our own in our families, in our communities. And so it's not just something for experts, but for, for, for each one of us. And so, so hospice volunteering is just one space where there's really good support, good training, and then, and then supervision to, to support people who have an intention to, to often use the term give back or, or to explore their grief. So I would say having a positive intention, but really a, a willingness to, to continue to, 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 to mine and investigate what comes up for one um, as a caregiver, including one's own motivation. Is there some, not that there's anything wrong with this. I'd say that we're all in some way trying to heal ourselves, to fully integrate. So, so how is it that, that I, through my caregiving, am seeking to heal something in my life? So that I'm, if I'm aware of that, I'm then not driven by it. It's there, but it's not driving me to then do things that would not be beneficial to the person I'm caring for.
in the book, I lay out offer some some contemplations that can support individuals in exploring this this kind of this kind of inner work. And you write about administering hospice services to those in prison in your book. I worked in a medical unit in a prison in a county jail and have been on scenes as a first responder where people have been killed during acts of violence, drug overdoses, and when they've taken their own lives. Would you speak a little bit about how compassionate care can be incorporated into these types of environments as far as, is there anything that stands out in your mind that first responders or people in emergency services could do to be more compassionate, to to extend compassion in those kind of high-intensity moments? Is there anything that we can do in responses to these situations where there isn't a lot of time available, where we haven't established trust with the family, where it's not a very controlled environment? Is there anything in your expertise that can be done in those types of situations? That's a great question, Ben. And and to start, I would say that one reason why I appreciate your question is that we we often have these notions that there is a, a good death or a good way to care. You know, we, we'll use the term like a death with dignity. And what I think is really important, it's good to have ideals. It's good to have some sensibilities of, of, of the kind of care we want to provide. And what's crucial, and this actually relates back to your early question on resilience and sustaining our, our good intentions, is we really need to have a respect for the context in which we're caring and how that context shapes what's possible. And so, you know, when I think about uh, EMS workers or, you know, folks on the battlefield and warfare who are, you know, attending to comrades who have fallen, I, I, I really have a sense of awe and respect for that. And likewise, in, in, for, for the men in prison I interviewed who are inmates themselves, caring for their, their dying inmates, these are contexts where where it's very difficult to give what we might think, I'm putting in quotations, perfect care. And so so one of the practices I offer in the book is, is what I call loving our imperfect care, that somehow accepting what we're able to do in that context rather than beating ourselves up for which we wish we could have done. So if I'm thinking about EMS worker, for example, I think in, a, in a, any kind of crisis situation, to the extent that we could simply embody a sense of non-anxious presence is, is, can be more than, than enough. So I've, I've worked, I'm now working as a chaplain, and I've worked on oncology units and, and intensive care units and, and emergency rooms. And, you know, I would say, like, on the oncology ward, there's a lot of time for me to, to be with, with patients, with their family members, where there's an awareness you know, hey, I have cancer, the, the end is coming. And so so, so a lot of, of space there as opposed to on the ICU or in the emergency room where where it is crisis moment. And, and oftentimes I'm not, there's really, in some sense, nothing that I'm doing. I'm not saying anything. I'm not doing, administering any care. I'm simply being there witnessing and, and I'll hear from, from families feedback that, it was so amazing what I did when I was simply being in the room without being frenetic. I was, the, 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 in some sense, some sort of offering, some sort of holding environment. So I would say that as, as sort of a, a general thing of, of one, just having a, an honoring of the, of the environment so that we don't beat ourselves up, you know, wishing things had been better. 
to accepting the environment we're in and, and doing your best we can. And then, and then in that, really, to the extent that we have a sense of inner calm within ourselves, that we can offer that, can, can be the most healing thing we can do, even if someone dies, even if someone is, is severely impaired, going through trauma, if we can offer a, a sense of calm in the face of that, that is, can be a tremendous mm-hmm. gift. I love that. I love that. Yeah, certainly on scenes of chaos and how centering and how powerful that can be simply to see someone uh, in the room exuding that type of peace and calm. Powerful, powerful. You write, through contemplating the realities we are exposed to through grief, our own loss can become a powerful seed for a life of compassion. At Get Up Nation, we focus a lot on transforming the adversity, trauma, or suffering we experience into legacies of profound positive impact. You describe how grief can be an agent of this personal development. You write, grief isn't just a negative state that threatens our capacity to care. Grief is fundamentally a creative act that when nourished intends uh, toward integration and wholeness. Grief is a response to a broken bond. Will you speak about how people can navigate their grief in healthy ways and some of the ways that maybe our grief can be processed in ways that that can be compounded if we if is there a skill there how can how can we deal with grief so that we don't compound our suffering I appreciate you pulling out that quote there Ben and, and inviting us to think about how suffering isn't just something their loss grief isn't just something done to us but it's something that that we can or are called to, to work with to integrate into our lives I think that is really the the when we think of resilience we might think of that as something that some people have and others don't, and if only I had that. And it is something that we can cultivate, certainly. And the way we do that is by turning towards rather than away from, from the suffering in our lives. That's really what I see as the, as the, as the root of, of, of resilience. And I would say also with that is the power of, of an ethical framework or an ethical worldview or, or a spiritual view to life. So, so for me, this is, you know, in, in, in investigating, so beginning at age 18, but throughout my 20s, 30s, I'm, I'm 50 years old today. It's really been my entire adult life of, of coming back to this question of, of how can I take for, for, for me, it was actually, you know, a, a murderous rage in me of wanting to actually kill someone myself, of wanting to kill this man, James, who killed my mother. How, how can I take this, this, this impulse and transform it into, into something that aligns with what I see is, is fundamental to, to Christianity, to Buddhism, to, to Islam, to all the major world religions and really any spiritual foundation and, and, and that is to cultivate what I what I see as fundamentally human, which is this capacity for compassion. And so I would say that there's some sort of you know ethical framework that we're then practicing. I'm finding a space for 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 working with that and putting it in, into practice. And so it's not just ideas; it it has to do with with putting it into practice and and working with it and and allowing the practice to transform us. So this is. You know, whether, you know, there's each spiritual tradition offers some kind of contemplative practice. And I know in Christianity, there's contemplative prayer. In Buddhism, there's various forms of meditation. 
And what I express in the book is that caregiving itself can can provide us this kind of contemplative space where we can see ourselves and really stretch ourselves and work with, you know, different irritations that come up. I'm caring for someone that I don't necessarily like. But the only way I'm going to be transformed by it is if, if I'm putting myself, I'm, if I'm engaging in the practice and I have an intention behind it. So in, in, you know, in, in Christianity, there's this golden rule. In, in Buddhism, there's I, compassion ideals. In hospice care, there's this ethical principle that, that no matter who shows up in that bed, we attend to them with love and care as we would anyone else. And so it's that, that principle really, I didn't understand when I began at age 20, 24 how radical it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that sometimes maybe even the founders of hospice didn't understand how radical it was. Mm-hmm. But I have come to investigate, you know, if I can show up in, in, the, in the room here with people I don't, some, some people I care for I didn't really like, and I didn't have to like them. Mm-hmm. But I, but I am showing up and, and practicing what I say I'm going to do. I'm going, I'm going to give them the best care I can. Mm-hmm. And so that stretching over and over allowed. That was the practice that allowed me to. If I can do this at the bedside of these of here, can I do this in other areas of my life where where I get stuck? And I found that I could transfer this practice. So. I want to answer your question this way as well. On this, on September 12th, here, the day after 9/11, you know, this common phrase that you know, never forget, and and that moves me deeply and very profound. But it's not just an idea. For for me, it's the never forget what really is the lesson, and how do we, when we experience suffering, whether it be my individual, my mother was murdered, or this collective trauma that that are, that that we as a people were attacked, how then can I take that suffering and work with it to more fully realize who I am or who we are as a people? That's really the, the question for me. So it takes the, the ethical foundation and and a set of practices to engage with and work with that to stretch us so we really can be be the person that I want to be, the father I want to be, the, the citizen I want to be. And and what I, what I think your podcast is about, you're, you're the nation that we want to be. Mm. Yeah, I, absolutely. And you describe how becoming a contemplative caregiver can help people develop a profound gratitude when death is encountered, even amid the pain of loss. Many people who lose their spouse to cancer or other terminal conditions describe their lives being completely turned upside down by grief. Uh, when their, You write that uh, when their partner died, it seemed that a part of their own self died as well, confronting them with the pain of creating a new life out of the fabric of so much loss. But many of the people I've spoken with also describe how you write, through caring for a loved one and struggling with their own grief, a new part of their self was born. When we are made to confront death and loss, we often gain deeper insights into who we are, what we are capable of, and what truly gives life meaning. Uh, this process can involve what psychologists call post-traumatic growth. That's a quote from your book. Would you speak a little about how serving those with end-of-life care relates to a new birth and gratitude for the experience of living? Uh-huh. So thank you for lifting that, that out of the book, Ben. That's a, and I want to begin by saying that what I'm what I'm not saying is, oh, when 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 we experience loss in our lives, small or or profound traumatic losses, that we have some kind of go to put on a smiley face, 
it's all good, or I'm so grateful that this horrible thing happened to me. So, I'm, so that, that's not what I'm saying, but we can always be grateful for the opportunity to wake up. We can always be grateful for, for the, the gift of our own life and how we can, and the capacities that we have as a species, um, as an individual, to move towards integration, which I think is, is, is fundamental to, to what makes us human, is that we do want to integrate losses in our lives. Um, traumas are just particularly hard uh, to integrate, but we are striving towards an integration. So, so for me, the, the, the gratitude, it's, it's not just for my own, for me, my own journey as an end-of-life caregiver, it's seeing how my own life, that I'm not in this alone, that there are these other folks, these wise people who, who founded hospice, who they were motivated by the suffering in their own lives, how, how their work of integration led them to creating, contributing to a better healthcare system, led them to, to creating ideas and ways of caring that, that have benefited so many and continue into a next generation. So I write about that as a lineage of compassion. And so, so for, for me, that, that in the gratitude I have is, I don't have to do this alone. Even in those times when I, when I feel alone, and, and I think a lot of this is what a lot of burnout is, is that we're disconnected from our own positive motivation, our own positive intention, but we're also disconnected from, from a wider sense of participating in a, a, a larger human drama, a larger human narrative that I'm, I'm journeying with others, including others who have passed before me. So, you know, standing on the shoulders of these others and drawing inspiration from their work as well. Well, yeah, and just in just thinking about what you've said there and what you touched on earlier about making things right, you know, and, and understanding that we're all in this together and that we all are imperfect and to this this profound reality of death of an an end to what we've been experiencing that's so thorough and profound. It's a way, it's also, on the flip side of that, it's also a massive opportunity to show love and compassion because of the profundity of it, because of mistakes we have maybe made in the past or things that we have grieved in the past that we didn't do a certain thing or we didn't show compassion in the past. This is such a profound opportunity to, like you said, make things right, where many people are blocked from experiencing a gratitude by maybe a personal failure on the, in their opinion of what they did or didn't do in the past. You describe how people who, who give compassionate end-of-life care is often a healing practice serving dying inmates in prison or serving those who have been stigmatized in society, such as those who were suffering from AIDS. And initially there was a lot of ignorance about what caused it and the effects of it and Stig and stigma around people who were diagnosed with it. This this opportunity people can see as truly a, a transcendent. And correct me if I'm wrong or I'm not using the right language, but it seems like providing compassion in these moments of of death, the profundity of that, of doing good for others, of serving with compassion. In those moments, people often can find a sense of, I don't know if the word is closure or a sense of making things right in these moments. Can you describe some of that process and, and the opportunity that's there for us in, in, every, in every moment, in every present moment that we have and where we can uh, take maybe 
perceived failures in the past and and bring bring something new to the table to help heal us by serving these people who are going through this transition. Yes. So what I'll do is I'd like to offer a story of one of the men I interviewed in prison that I think illustrates profoundly the dynamic you're talking about, about how showing up when others are suffering can be a way for, so in offering compassionate care can be a way for us to to heal and integrate losses in our own lives, places where we may have carried a sense of guilt, of this language of making right. Many of the people I interviewed use this language in, in, in English and then also in Germany, to somehow make something right. Well, there was a man I interviewed in, in a state prison he had been in for many, many years, and he was highly involved in the veterans group in the prison. So prior to becoming involved in the hospice care at the prison, he was supporting his fellow veterans in applying for benefits that they didn't, you know, in helping them figure out the paperwork, things like this, that they could receive. And so he was already engaged in caring for others in prison before he got involved in the hospice work, but he described how Many of the of the men that he cared for in the prison infirmary were veterans, and he explained how there wasn't often a lot of talk about wartime experiences, but simply knowing that that I had been there too gave a, a really deep sense of, of of brotherhood that for him was deeply healing. And here's how he described it: He said he went to Vietnam. Uh, there were fourteen of them, many many of them uh, from his from his high school that went to Vietnam, and 13 of the, of the guys who went with, from his high school went to Vietnam did not come back alive. Mm-hmm. And so he also described how there were men in his unit that he was in charge of who, you know, they'd be flown out on a medevac, and, and he, you know, maybe they were going, they'd go to Germany, they'd go somewhere, and he would never see them again, and he didn't know, did they, did they make it, did they survive? And a lot of the guys, he couldn't remember their names, but he said, I could remember their faces. Mm. You know, this is from years and years, decades, decades later. And he said he always had this sense of, of, of guilt um, that he survived and they didn't. But on top, that was also the sense of not knowing, that the sense of, of did they make it, did they not. And so he found that, that, that showing up in the prison infirmary and caring for fellow veterans, many of them from the Vietnam War, different faces, different names, but the, the same the same struggle, the same the same journey that caring for them, he described that as a way of integrating this earlier losses. He described Vietnam as like bookends of his life, that going to Vietnam was one bookend and then and then decades later in his life, showing up at the prison infirmary, caring for his fellow inmates with his other bookend of his life that really allowed him to to feel a deep sense of peace in his life and a sense of completion and rounding out that experience. So that that's a one story. The, the, the quote, some of the language he used was very beautiful. So it's in a section of the book, a chapter on offering spiritual friendship, I call, and, and, and there at the section, I say, on the, the warrior's compassion, embodying this warrior's compassion that, that Alton really had in his life that extended beyond the battlefield. This this was with him his whole life. And and I think part of the problem, perhaps, that folks who come back from 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 service from combat is there's intense camaraderie, this intense I would do anything, I would die for this person having nowhere to put it. And here he found this place in this 
of all places in a prison infirmary where he could take that energy of showing up no matter what. And it was profoundly healing for him. So, so that's one story that, that illustrates what you're saying. There's many others. The circumstances are different, but, but it's illustrating that no matter what the circumstances of our lives are, no matter what the traumas are that we face, that when, when our heart is open, we can find those places for, for, for integration and for healing. And what profound gratitude comes from that of, of reality offering us a way to make amends, of uh, experiencing that and not just, and to know that there's a way out of some of, some of those very troubling experiences, how much gratitude. And it just gives me chills to, to think of all the things that all, all were, all the people that may be listening to this, all the people that are out there, you know, no one is perfect and we've had failures and we've let people down. And yet how inspiring and how exciting it is that there are opportunities around us where we can make things right, where we can become involved in healing, not just ourselves, but others, and to collectively relieve pain, to ease some of these deep-seated sufferings. It's such a, it's, people need to read your book. They need to read this book. I'll go on here. Um, It touches on some of what, what you had talked about as far as human beings who face the reality that death is a reality for human beings. You write, true happiness results from engaging life with meaning and purpose integral to the power of end of life care, caregiving is how it can inspire meaning in our lives through bringing into our awareness over and over what is so often denied in the wider society. Death will come to us all, no matter how young or vibrant we may feel ourselves to be. A hospice worker you interviewed said, being with that dying person, seeing those last few breaths, I'm feeling what has been happening and is happening. We are taking those breaths. We're just not counting yet. Many of us have a profound aversion to death. What are some of the ways we benefit by not running from it, but by accepting this reality, by facing it, and by ending our resistance or denial of this reality? Well, thank you for bringing in that quote. I can see that woman's face. What a, what a beautiful, wise woman. She, was a, she immigrated to the U.S. from Nicaragua in, in the 1970s, and her story is deeply profound. So, I'm, so I appreciate you bringing that, in that quote there. Well, I, this question in some sense comes back to to this one of your first questions about how we can prepare ourselves for this work. And uh, I would say that we, we often may think of, you know, hospice volunteering or, or other kinds of caregiving opportunities, particularly if they are under the rubric of volunteering, as some kind of charity work done, doing something, you know, for someone else. And so in some ways that can set me apart from someone that here you you are you are dying and I, and I am living and I'm I'm going to help you and so so I describe in the book I use the term a reciprocity of care and of course some people will say you know hey I, I get back more than I give and you know in terms of feeling good things like this and that's not exactly what what I mean by that term what I mean is that the the founders of hospice understood and and Cicely Saunders who founded the first hospice in England she was drawn she was an Anglican so she's drawn on on Christian sources so you know Psalm ninety verse twelve you know teach us to number our days that we may have a heart of wisdom this idea that that we human beings don't you know, that's actually a prayer hey God you know help me out remind me that I'm mortal so so I don't squander my life so so I can have a heart of wisdom. And so 
that's actually what I have found and what many people have found in hospice care. It's not like we went into it with this idea, hey, I'm going to go into this so I can be reminded often of a weekly or daily, you know, a couple times a week of my mortality. But that's just what happens, you know, if, if our heart is open. And so in that sense, I found that end-of-life caregiving is a way of practicing that verse of the Bible, you know, to teach me to have a, uh, you know, to number my days. And so what I've come to realize, to, to, you know, as much as I can, is that, you know, when I'm sitting, when, when I'm going into a room, whether it's as a hospice volunteer or now as a, as a chaplain, when I'm going into the room in, in the hospital and there's the, the person in the bed and then there's the, 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 the family caregiver, that, you know, I've never been that one in the bed. I have been the caregiver of someone who was dying in my in my family, so I know what it's like to be, you know, in some sense to be sitting in that in that seat. Well, right now I just happen to be sitting in this seat as the as the caregiver, as the, as the chaplain or the volunteer. At some point, it's just a matter of time before I'm in that bed over there, and so it's that sort of that's part of the sacredness for me. You know what the Christians would call, you know, a kairos. There's chronos. So in this in in, in chronos, in this chronological time, I'm living and that person is dying. Yet. Yeah, we're, we're all living, and we're all, the dying person is also living, and I'm also dying. And so the, the sacredness for me is, is having this larger perspective of this, this, this that it, it is just a matter of time, and very a flash of lightning in the dark before I'm the one in that, in that bed. And so my willingness to investigate my own mortality, my own powerlessness, actually supports me in seeing the vitality of the person in the bed, of embracing them as just like me. <laughs> Not sure if I'm if I'm moved far afield of your question. If you maybe repeat your question, Ben, oh, come back to. Oh no, that's 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 powerful. That's because it it is it has answered it in a sense of you know being very aware of our own mortality. That it truly does give us a perspective which lets us understand that even the the magnitude of even the tiniest of moments of of the the things that we do, the things that we experience, it alters our mindset so that we can really have a gratitude that that doesn't just appreciate, you know, the highlights in life, but the littlest of things, you know, the the breeze on your neck that carries the scent of flowers, the warmth of the sun through a window, a child, you know, snuggling up next to you and, and wanting you to read them a book. These it truly makes these little moments that we you know, it just shows that uh, nothing is to be taken for granted, and it becomes even more gratitude-producing to know, to experience that, and to just be aware continuously of the gift of life. So I and so and one thing, and I wanted to also get to, you know, one of my favorite parts of your book is the, it's the chapter called "Caring with a Playful Spirit." So in, yeah. in, in can, can, can I jump in real quick absolutely. just to say one more thing yeah, before we go to that? I, I just want to highlight that this, you know, this this energy of gratitude for the gift of life that you're speaking about, and for these precious moments. I want to I want to say that 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 just like resilience, I think gratitude is central to resilience as well. I appreciate you lifting that up, and it is something that we can practice as well. And so, this is I'll offer a a scene that perhaps many people know. Where you're driving on the highway and you're maybe you're you know just listening to the radio, listening to the music, or talking to folks in the car, or you're daydreaming, whatever. And then there's an accident up ahead, and the car's overturned on the side of the road, 
and there's the ambulance, and so all the cars are slowing down. And for a moment there, you're 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 taken out of the of the routine of your driving, and and you're and and you're driving real slow. And there's a sense of being impacted by the, the the fragility of life. And then the sort of the question is, is it like how many minutes? before you're driving, you know, back up to 70 miles an hour and, and, and back into that routine way of thinking, you know, where you've left that accident from behind. Maybe that's different for EMS workers. But what I'm saying is that, that so there's this, what hospice offers is one space where there's this reminder, I mean, where, where for me it was once or twice a week going to see someone. So I'm, and it's not like it's depressing, like, a, like I'm reminded of death, but I'm just in the, in the space, in the presence of someone who is near in the end who is quite open and receptive to living. But there's this re- re- reminder built, built in. And so I think that in that way, it's like a prayer. You know, we say prayers to remind ourselves, you know, someone saying grace at mealtime to remind yourself that, that you have food and maybe others don't, you know, others don't. And so I, I just want to bring up that dimension to it of how can we build into our lives this practice of gratitude, this practice of reminding ourselves of the preciousness where where I will, you know, if I'm driving along in that moment, look in the rearview mirror and see my, look at my daughter and just feel a deep gratitude that she's alive. She was alive before I saw the accident, but it's in that moment that I'm reminded of how precious her life is. Right. So thanks, thanks for letting me offer that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I just, and when I think of this, I've never, I've never worked as a hospice worker, but I, in my mind's eye, when I think of somebody who, who does this work, their drive home from work, I, I, I can only imagine the experience of going from that room, that, from that experience, and then the drive home where, how, how different it must be for many who go home from work and they're thinking about, <laughs> You know things that they have to get done, or this list, or you know all that stuff. And the 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 I just think of the the person who who does this end of life work, driving home, and how different their perspective is, and how I, I just can't imagine the the amounts of just the depth of understanding of life that they experience uh, during this process, how impacted they are, how profound that is, and how the little things become not so little, or the you know things that many of us think are a big deal. You know the the wisdom of knowing how that how they aren't. Uh-huh. I just think of the that what people what noble people who do this work what they experience on their drive home. I just I just think of that. Uh-huh. But I I wanted to also talk the caring with a playful spirit section of your book. I love that. And some of the work that I've done with people who suffer from Alzheimer's disease and dementia, one of the experiences that I've felt that's been extremely satisfying and inspiring to be a part of is generating an ability to find what the person thinks is fun and is comical. As medical providers, you know, seek to help them cope with their immense challenges, it's a great joy to bring the moments of laughter and levity to see somebody who is you know, struggling with uh, hallucinations to see people who are experiencing, you know, terrifying uh, realities within their experience and to calm them and bring them to the point where they actually are able to crack a smile. Uh, it's like, it's like sunlight when it happens that you can break into the darkness and how satisfying it is to give them that moment of laughter, 
you write that when we respond to a dying person with a playful spirit, we affirm the wholeness of that person, that they're more than just a person who is sick or one who's dying. We likewise affirm our own wholeness and capacity for authentic encounter. Play takes us beyond the guarded stance of pity into the spaciousness of joyful encounter, offering both a respite from taking ourselves too seriously and, and a mindset that supports our own growth. What are some ways caregivers can care with a playful spirit? Well, I would say that to, to start with that what I don't mean by playing with a careful spirit, playful spirit is being silly or necessarily being upbeat or trying to cheer someone up. I tell a story in, the, in, in that chapter of this guy named Tom. He was, he was a, a, a very witty, witty and, and a playful man I met. He was in the prison, an inmate at the prison, and he described going into the infirmary with a, as an, a new volunteer and with this real upbeat kind of energy. And uh, it didn't mesh well with the guy who was dying in the bed. He was, he was angry and upset. Mm. And so I'll just begin by saying that, that what I don't, I don't mean that we're trying to take someone away from their suffering. We're right. trying to change how they feel, right. something, manipulate them, something like that. But I, what I am saying is that I use the metaphor of improv, that for anyone who's ever done any sort of improvisational theater, that it is fundamentally a receptive mode that of being aware of, of the needs and, and moves of others. And so a related metaphor that one of the individuals I interviewed was of, of you know, we're, as a volunteer, at the caregiver, we're, we're playing second violin. And so we're always following the lead of the person. And so in the quote that you gave of, you know, when we care with a playful spirit, we're affirming the wholeness of, of, of the other. Sometimes the, 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 the most healing thing is, is can be watching TV, mm. can be eating a bowl of soup with someone. And so, you know, when, in speaking of play, I think I, I begin that, that section by writing about, you know, we understand how important play is for children. And, and why would we think that adults are any different? And it's like if we, if we solely saw caregiving as, as this, that there is suffering, that, you know, that, that I need to try to help relieve your suffering. If we relate to our, our children that way, is that only saw them as beings who suffered and our sole role as a parent was to help relieve their suffering, we would drive them crazy. That, that the wholeness is that even those who are dying, even those who are, who are in pain, different kinds of pain will, if, if we're following their lead, they may have needs that are, that have nothing to do with having cancer at that moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and certainly with the example you give of some with Alzheimer's, I think uh, in, in my understanding, in my experience, understanding a lot of the, of the, some of the most intense suffering with Alzheimer's uh, is, is when someone is in, in stages where they're aware that, that, uh, that they're losing their, their memory. That could be a really scary place. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the suffering of the caregivers. But, but I have found, and I've heard from others, that, that when I engage someone with Alzheimer's on their own terms, that there really can be the most ridiculously joyful moments, and even moments that just beyond, you can't make this stuff up. Right. Uh, you know, there was, a, there was a, a gentleman who was 101 who I was caring for in a nursing home, and and, and some days he would he would sort of know who I was, and, and other days he wouldn't. He wouldn't remember, he wouldn't know my name. 
but he often, he was a cabinet maker in his life, and he often thought that I worked for him. And so, you know, he would have me moving furniture around, and, you know, I would have, I would be, I would, why not? You know, I'm in a yeah. common room, I'd, I'd move the furniture around, I'll move it back, you know. Um, and, then, and then one day he wanted me to bust down a wall, you know, and so rather than arguing with him about reality right. that, look, I don't work for you, buddy. You know, I'm a hospice volunteer, and you, right. you know. Instead, I, I, found, I found a playful way to continue with, with what we were doing. I, and I just said, you know what? I, I'm not sure that's what we want to do. Because I'm, 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 my concern is if we bust that wall out, it's gonna, the room's going to be a little cramped on the other side. And, <laughs> and we just flowed with it, you know? And then we had some lunch, you know? So, I, so that's sort of what I, what I fundamentally mean is, it, it's, you know, that's sort of like I was improving with him. Like, mm-hmm. he... I wasn't expecting him to throw out that line. Hey, let's bust out the wall. How am I going to work with this within the constraints of of, uh, of the context here? Um, and so that's what I mean by that playful energy. It, it, it's um, a willingness to to receive the fullness of the of the other as not just someone who has suffering that I need to help relieve, but someone who has all kinds of needs, and they may present you know very. What I might think of as really mundane needs, but they're actually really profound needs in that moment for them. Awesome! Yeah, I love that. Oh, I love that. I can see that happening, and it's yeah, it's it's it does nobody any any good to argue about it or say something, and to just go with it. Really, it's it's just so great to see them feel valued and and to connect with somebody where there's oftentimes a difficulty in that connection because of everything that's happening internally. So, what a moment of joy you gave him and. That's just, that's just great. Can I also add there, Ben, I think another way to think about that is, you know, I think in, in the book, I, in one of the contemplations, each, each chapter has, a, a, has a, a section that I call a contemplation that really invites readers to integrate, the, you know, their stories and teachings into, their, into one's own life. And in that chapter, I, the, the contemplation centers around this question. For me, I would pose the question here: What does it mean to, to play with a careful, uh, to care with a playful spirit? It's really, who do I need to be for this person in this moment? I think that I phrase the question something like that: Is it is it the energy of of a dear friend? Is it the energy of of a loving mother? Is it the energy of a of a listening? a kind sister. And so I found that, that, you know, that in different times I've taken on different energies with, with, with patients, both as a hospice volunteer and, and also as, as a, as a chaplain, you know, there are times when someone really needs me to, to, you know, to, to be an authority figure, you know, they're, they're calling me father. I'm not a priest. You know, they're calling me <laughs> father or sometimes the folks will call me Rabbi, you know, okay, I'm I'm not Jewish, but it's fine. Call me, but what they're telling me is they they really need me to to be this authority figure in that moment. And if that's what they need, that's what it means to to that's following their lead, and that's what it means to to have that playful spirit is seeing what their underlying need is and seeing how they're expressing it and 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 playing the certain kind of role to 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 support them in their in their journey. Yeah, that is great. I, is there? I just want to. I, I usually end the show with six quick questions, but before we get to the, the final portion of the show, is there anything that you'd like to, to say, uh, anything that you'd like to raise awareness about or, or anything that's coming up soon um, that you'd like the audience to be aware of or anything you want to direct their attention to before we move into the final section of the show? 
Well, one thing I would encourage uh, listeners to go to my website, johnericbauer.com, and and to check out the resources there, including blogs that I'm now writing and offering on themes and, and practices in the book, and from other caregiving experiences as a chaplain and elsewhere. And I really am writing these blogs in, you know, these are short stories in the spirit of posing a, a question or a theme that I believe is, is relevant to many caregivers and many folks who are grieving. So that's one, one thing I would offer is encourage folks to take a look at those blogs, and they can subscribe on my website, you know, uh, to my newsletter where I'll send out when a new blog is being posted. And then also offer that I do one of my offerings is caregiving mentoring. Um, I've only ever done this in person, but, I, but it could be through, through Skyping as well of supporting folks in who are caregiving. It can be one or two sessions where I can really help folks develop confidence model for them and, and offer feedback on their caregiving to really develop the confidence that they have it in them to do this. Um, and then likewise, some bereavement support that I offer, which is not clinical in the sense of approaching grief as a psychological problem, but instead approaching grief as a spiritual opportunity for integration and for opening ourselves to, to living the, the life we want to live, a more compassionate and, and fulfilling life. Doctor, I always end the show with six questions to help my listeners understand the why within my phenomenal guests. Will you run through these six quick questions with me? Absolutely, Ben. Who are you thankful for today? At this moment, my wife, Andrea Martello, comes up, a wonderful partner who has supported me through, through so many changes in our lives and, and been a lot of fun in the process, too. And now that we've covered who you're thankful for, what are you thankful for today? Well, I am thankful this morning of this gorgeous weather. It's a little overcast today and cooler. Fall is arriving, and I love the changing seasons. What a re re reminder of the seasons of our lives. How do you fuel the fire within you? Oh, I do that in many ways. So one way is when I get up in the morning, before I put my feet on the floor, I turn my mind to something that, that I'm grateful for. <laughs> what is one thing adversity taught you to value? That I have it in me to, to be happy, that it is, it is, no matter what has been dealt to me, that it is, it is central to my life that, that joy is, is, is also possible, that, that it's for me as well, just as it is for others. What are you doing today you may have never thought you could? Well, if I'm thinking back to that teenager <laughs> who lost his mom, I would never imagine that I would be having this conversation right now of having a, a life that of decades of, of journeying with with what at that time was was nothing but sorrow and nothing but but overwhelm and and now with the space of I can reflect on my mom's life. I can reflect on my life with a sense of gratitude for what I've received and for who she is and how I can live my life in a way that honors all that she gave me. And what will you do tomorrow that you may have never thought you could? That is a great question, Ben. And I guess I'm going to discover that, I would say. I don't know what, what comes next. I think, I think that's it. I would say that what I am doing right now, I would say a professor for many years, a tenured professor, I left that world in 2014, and I'm now on a, on a journey, a fuller journey of integration of, of all parts of myself that have, that have taken me out of that kind of more predictable seasons of my life, of, of the semester begins and the semester ends and a new semester begins. And so 
I'm developing a more organic rhythm to my life that, that I'll see what comes. I don't know. I'm, I'm excited about the, about that not knowing and discovering who will I get to be in this life and, and seeing this conversation and even you posing that question to me that I'll get to sit with now. <laughs> and, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that, Ben. So I, I don't know. Let, let, let's talk again in a year and, 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 uh, and we'll see, see what happens. Yeah, let's do that. That sounds good. <laughs> All right, my last question. How can people learn more about you and your work? My website is probably the best place to go to, www.johnericbauer.com, which lists, you know, this book and two other books that I've worked on and blogs and different offerings that I make. So if someone's working in a, in a health organization and would like to come in to offer a training or a workshop or individuals who are looking for support in their work, I've offered various things there. So that's probably the best place to go is to my website. All right. 